So do you have on your daily to-do list training in godliness? Anybody? Great. Somebody does. So we're going to be talking about that this morning because that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about, being trained in godliness because of the desperate need for that. And where we left off last week in um, in 1 Timothy was verses 14 to 16. So we're going to look at that briefly. And, and that's Paul's purpose statement for writing the letter in verses 14 to 16. So what he says is, I hope to come to you soon. And what Paul is doing is he's encouraging Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And he's hoping to come and meet with them. But in the meanwhile, Timothy has some hard work to do in terms of dealing with false teaching in the church. So he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So Paul wrote to Timothy as to how one ought to behave in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And God's purpose for his household is that it should be a pillar and support, buttress or foundation of the truth. And what's going on is in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, there was a group that was misbehaving in regards to not upholding the truth. The group actually professed to have a better way of, of, of God, pursuing a relationship with God, uh, a better way to, to be spiritual, to, to reach God, through myths, genealogies, and, and law-keeping, and not the gospel. What Paul said in verse 16, then, is that godliness is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, he calls this the mystery of godliness because it could only be planned and revealed by God, and so it wasn't totally clear in the Older Testament how God was going to, to bring about godliness among his people, and, uh, and it was revealed and accomplished in Jesus Christ. So the mystery of godliness is the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, his death and resurrection, his ascension to God, and his proclamation among the nations. True godliness couldn't come from human religious or spiritual efforts. It could only come through gospel-centered doctrine, teaching that's centered on the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. If this way of godliness is so plainly taught in Scripture, why are some teaching a different way? That's what's going on here, and, and what, what should they do about it? Well, we'll see this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, and I'll read that for you now. I think we have that on the screen. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we will toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Father, we ask for your spirit to guide us in our understanding of your word. Thank you for giving us your sure word of truth. Help me to make it clear in the way I speak. May you reveal to us, Father, through your word and spirit, how we are to live out these truths. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So Paul said that Timothy should have expected doctrinal problems to to occur in his church because um, what it says in verse 1 is the Spirit explicitly said, clearly revealed that in later times some will turn away from the faith or abandon the faith. This is also called apostasy. It's upsetting when some of God's family rejects the faith. So um, he warned, God warned the apostles that this would happen. He says it happened, it happened in later times. In, in, in Bible talk, later times refers to um, all, all the time from Jesus' ascension to his return. So later times is their times and the times that we're living in now. So it could happen. These things could take place at any time during the two comings of Jesus Christ. How will they depart from the faith? Well, he says, by paying attention to or devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Sounds kind of freaky. Did they realize what they were into? Well, in verse 2, he says that their apostasy, their turning away from the faith, was through the insincerity of the hypocrisy of liars. So they knew they were devoting themselves to false, different doctrine. They were pretending to be sincere Christians, but they were not. And as a result, their consciences were seared like with a hot iron. They, were, they couldn't feel the wrongness of what they were doing anymore. They, they were in teaching false doctrine. They were believing false doctrine, but they couldn't feel it in their hearts that it was wrong. The word seared can also mean branded. So it could have also been saying that he's been branded by, by Satan as his um, agents. So it's pretty serious stuff. So, so what are these sinister, freaky doctrines of demons? Is becoming a devil worshiper? Is it uh, engaging in bizarre rituals? Practicing dark magic? Joining your local occult group? What, what's he talking about, doctrines of demons? Well, in verse 3, here's what he's saying. The demonic doctrines that these false teachers are propagating are forbidding marriage and prohibiting the eating of certain foods. You say, really? That's demonic teaching? That's what he says. Now, for some of you, not eating certain foods is really scary because you have an open mouth policy toward all food. And uh, you could imagine that that wouldn't play well in a, in a, a movie that featured demonic stuff like Nightmare and, and Ephesus. Um, no more Twinkies. Ah, that's freaking you out. It's scary. Well, why are these doctrines of demons? Why does he call them that? Because they siphon off or divert away trust in the gospel. And that's what demons are after. They're not out to, to do weird stuff just for the sake of doing weird stuff. They're, they're out to do whatever they can to get you off faith from the gospel. 
That's their agenda. That's their goal. They tell the lie that by denying yourself even good things that God has created, you can be holy, you can be godly, you can be a good person, you can be spiritual. You can, um, you can, you can ascend to God. They, they lead you to put your trust not in the free grace of Christ in the gospel, but in yourself. They have one goal, that you don't believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Demonic doctrine says there are there is no mystery to godliness. Hey, what's the mystery of godliness? What, what's why why is it a mystery? It's it's pretty straightforward. You just follow this list of do's and don'ts. Just be a nice person um, and become part of our group that has the inside track to being spiritual or to connect with God or to achieve higher consciousness. Just follow what we say and, and you'll be good. Demonic teaching is not about freaky, weird, and strange phenomena necessarily. It's, it involves whatever it takes to deceive people. Paul says deceitful spirits are behind it about God, the gospel. They're deceiving about God, the gospel, and, and sin and eternal life. They do whatever works to achieve that goal. And if it works by, by getting people to buy into a strict treatment of the body or denial of good gifts of God, then they'll promote that. So that's what they do. It's like Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. He says, these have an appearance, those teachings like this have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's harsh treatment of the body, severity to the body. But they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they don't help you grow in godliness. Paul isn't saying a believer may not have a valid reason for not marrying. He himself, Paul, didn't get married. He said, uh, hey, if you, you can devote yourself more uh, fully to Jesus if, if you're not married. You can just be all out for Jesus. So he wasn't saying that's wrong necessarily, but it's not that remaining unmarried in itself makes you more holy or spiritually superior. It's not a way to become more godly, necessarily. Or you may have dietary reasons or cultural reasons for not eating certain foods. Or you may have uh, there's legitimate reasons for fasting. Fasting can be a good pr uh, a process, a good practice. But just not eating certain foods doesn't make you more godly in and of itself. And that's what these teachers are saying. Hey, uh, don't get married and don't eat these foods and, and listen to our myths and you can become godly. In fact, regarding food, Paul says God created it to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So um, as believers, we, we eat our food with thanksgiving because we know the truth. That God is the creator of our food, which he provides out of his goodness, and that we are free to eat any food. So we know that is true. In verse 4, Paul continues talking about this. He's, he affirms that believers are free to eat any food that they desire because God has said in Genesis 1, everything he created is good and no food is to be rejected. This doesn't mean we just eat without reference to God because the Bible says whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God. So you, you give glory to God in the way that you eat. So it's not that you don't care about God and food. You just don't think that not eating makes you godly by itself. Man-made food rules glorify us, not God. And he says in verse 5 that food is made holy. It's set apart by the word of God in prayer. So in the Old Testament, they had certain dietary rules that they, they were to follow that were foreshadows of how God uh, was going to make us, his people holy in every area of their lives, including their food. 
So since Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament laws, what, what they foreshadowed, eating food is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Because by God's word, we know that he has provided good for us and food. And by God's word, we know that we are no longer under any food restrictions. And by prayer, we are thanking him and acknowledging his provision. So if you need a verse to pray over your food, there you go. First Timothy 4, 5, pray over your food, give thanks. Because it does come from God. Yeah, he uses intermediary means. He uses seed, he uses water, he uses farmers, he uses soil to do it, but it's from him. So we're, we're grateful. We're grateful that Costco has massive amounts of food beyond what you can ever eat. We're grateful for Burger King and sort of. My daughter loves chicken chicken tenders, chicken fingers, whatever. They I think they're gross, but I can eat them anyway. I guess. In verse 6, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Paul encouraged Timothy that as he did this, he would be serving Christ. He probably needed the encouragement to keep on being faithful and not give up because of the challenges that he's facing, dealing with all the, the disruption in the church. Timothy was trained in the words of faith and good doctrine that he had followed. That is the gospel and the doctrinal teaching that comes out of it. So what we need, we need constant training, constant training in the gospel and gospel-centered doctrine so that we are not seduced into one or more of the false ways of believing and living that are so prevalent. So, for example, here in Timothy, Paul uh, Tim Timothy reminds us that there are beliefs and moral practices that sound good. Hey, that sounds so, hey, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting married. I'm going to not eat certain foods. I'm going to be totally devoted to God. That sounds good, but if you're putting your trust in that to, to make you godly, then you're off base. And you only know that because of the words of the gospel. It's one of the responsibilities of those who teach God's word to keep good doctrine before you. In this way, we are serving Christ. So you, you aren't going to get personal teaching from Jesus directly. You've got to hear, hear it from the Bible and from those who teach the Bible. So you're stuck with us, faulty human teachers, but we, if we stick with the Word of God, then we're on safe ground. And we need regular training in gospel doctrine ourselves and not just assume that we will stay strong and, and sharpened because everything in the world pulls us, pulls us away from the gospel. Everything in the world is a distraction from the gospel. It's constantly trying to cause us to put our faith in other things beside the gospel of Christ. He says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Being trained in gospel-centered doctrine means rejecting irreverent, silly myths. Useless legends. Useless legends. Don't waste any time in, in worldly and, and godless ideas or books or blogs or internet discussions or Facebook threads or Reddit or don't Reddit. Um, rather, train yourself. And the word train is, we get the word gymnasium from it. It's gum, gumnazo. It's a great word. Gumnazo. Say that. Gumnazo. Yeah. Train yourself for godliness. What is godliness, by the way? So we've been saying that. Do you know what it is? It's um, godliness is God-centered thinking and living, making much of God in every area of your life. You don't go with the flow of the world. You renounce ungodliness and worldly desire. You love what God loves. 
You hate what God hates. You're passionate about the things that God is passionate about. So he's saying, train your thinking, train your will, train your desires for godliness. You say, well, that doesn't come easy for me. I I come to church, I try to pray, I, I just don't seem to be growing and becoming godly. Well, growing in godliness requires ongoing training. Some areas of our lives remain stubborn and seem resistant to change. Have you noticed that? I mean, some things you just seem to be stuck in. It's just so hard to change. But by sticking with the gospel-centered truth, it can happen. We want quick fixes, especially in America. But some things don't happen quickly. So we need to just keep on training, 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 training in doctrines of godliness. You think about skills or anything that you've gotten good at. Have any of you gotten good at something? I mean, are you good at something? Okay, so you can say it. Yes, I'm good at something. I'm good at cooking. I'm good at driving. I'm good at telling stories. I'm good at working. I'm good at programming computers. I'm good at banking. I'm good at spending money. I'm good at eating. So you can... So you picked up those skills by just doing them over and over and over and over again. In work, in sports, in hobbies, relationships, or virtually any area of your life. To develop competency in anything requires training. Sometimes it's a formal process. Sometimes you're just learning from from following someone who's good at it. Or a combination. The point is, growing in any area of life requires ongoing training, ongoing learning and discipline. Part of training for growth and skills involves not engaging in pursuits that do nothing to help you grow in those skills, but actually takes you away from them and and ruins your growth. That's why Paul says we should completely avoid godless and, and useless myths. What are you devoting time and heart to? What are you devoting time and heart to that detracts from your growth and godliness? What what are you engaged in that just doesn't help you grow in godliness. It takes, it brings you down. And if you're doing it, why are you doing it? Well, Paul says in verse 8, bodily training has some value. It's good to not let your body become sick and out of shape to whatever extent you can by healthy diet and exercise. We should be good stewards of the health as God's gift. But we're not to make an idol out of it. We shouldn't um, put more effort into uh, and concern into our bodies than we do for godliness. Godliness is valuable, he says. It's beneficial. It's profitable in every way for everything. Just It isn't just for church gatherings. What promise does godliness have for this life? He says it's got promise for this life. Well, um, You encourage and stir up others to love and good deeds. By your godliness, you encourage me to be godly. You look out for the good of others. You glorify God and um, make him look good to others. Like Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You display for unbelievers the hope and goodness of, of life in Jesus. You grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus. You have greater peace and joy. So these are advantages of godliness in this world, in this this life. You have greater endurance in hardships and sufferings. 
what promises godliness have for the life to come. Well, godliness doesn't earn you the life to come, for sure, so we know that. Um, Godliness gives evidence that you have been given new spiritual life in Christ. It's evidence that Christ is in you. He's at work in your life. It is evidence that Christ began a good work in you and he will bring it to completion at the day that he returns. Jesus said the pure in heart, in other words, the godly, shall see God. So there's, there's something about godliness in this life that carries over into the next life. If you're pure in heart, you'll see God. If you're not pure in heart, you're not going to see God. John writes in 1 John 3, 2-3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So in other words, those who will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ when he appears are presently engaged in purifying their lives living in godliness in this life. And Hebrews 12:14 says strive for peace and with everyone and for the holiness or the godliness without which no one will see the Lord. So again the point is not that our godliness in this life earns or merits for us entrance into the the new heavens and new earth with Jesus. Our godliness will never be perfect in this life and will need to be perfected by Christ in our resurrection bodies. The point is that godliness in this life is necessary evidence that we are united to Christ and will be with him in glorified godliness when he comes. So it's, uh, it's absurd to think that if you aren't pursuing godliness now that you're preparing to live in, in the perfection of it in the new heavens and new earth. In other words, if you don't care about godliness now, you won't love it when, it, when, it, when it's here in full. Living by gospel-centered doctrine transforms us and increases our appetite for godliness, renews us in godliness when we fail, and gives us hope to keep growing in it. So uh, have you noticed how hard it is to, to live in godliness? You've noticed how difficult it is, challenging? I mean, does it come easy for any of you? You're not going to admit it. Some of you who are just flying, you're doing great. You're not going to put the rest of us to shame about how challenging it is to live godly. Because we're centered on the gospel, it's not, a, it's not about us. It's about Jesus and his work in us. And we, we desperately cling to him. That's why we, we take the communion elements. We're saying, I need Jesus. I need to keep renewing myself in him again and again and again. I need to renew my faith in him every hour, every day, every moment of every day. I need to be addicted to Jesus because he's my cleansing agent. He's my perfecting person. Yeah, it's hard. What Paul says in um, in verse nine, he's saying it's a trustworthy saying, and it, it, it's question whether he's referring to what he says in verse eight or verse ten. So, what is the trustworthy saying? I think he's referring to verse eight. So, in other words, what he's saying is it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that godliness is of value in every way and holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. You can count on it. You can be sure godliness is valuable for now and for the life to come. It isn't a minor or optional pursuit that you do for extra credit. It impacts life now and eternity. And then in verse 10, 
Paul says, for this we toil and strive for training in godliness. We toil and strive in this, in teaching it and in living it. The, the word for toil um, means strenuous manual labor that saps energy. So godliness requires energy output. The word for strive presents the picture of an athlete putting the last ounce of his energy into the race in order victoriously to reach the goal. So godliness is so valuable for now and for the life to come, it is worth the best of our energy and effort. But we don't expect people to grow in godliness just because of effort. Rather, we toil and strive in this because we have set our hope in the living God. So because we hope in God, our efforts can can help us grow in godliness, but they don't grow just because we're putting out effort, but because our hope is in the living God. Since the living God is the Savior of all people, especially believers, we have hope that our labors are not in vain, but in cooperation with God's saving purposes, plan, and power. Because God is the Savior of all people, I know I can freely teach gospel-centered truth to any person in hope that God will save them. So God loves to save people. He just, he, he absolutely loves to save people. And he uses gospel-centered truth to do it. Now the false teachers there in Ephesus were limiting salvation to those who followed their, their myths and their, ver- their version of God's law and, and their asceticism, their harsh treatment of the body, their strict rules. But Paul taught that Christ came into the world to save sinners not to save people who had already ramped up their godliness. He came to save sinners. And it's just saving sinners that makes them godly, not their own efforts as part of some, some elite spiritual group that saves them. Christ saves sinners and makes them godly. Of course, when Paul says God is the Savior of all people, he doesn't mean that all people get saved. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So God is pleased to save anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus. He's just that clear. Trust in Jesus Christ and I will save you. Don't and I won't. But I'm glad to, happy to, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's why he says God is the Savior of all people, especially those who who believe namely those who believe. So if God is the Savior, why does Paul say that he and his team exert such strenuous effort? I mean, if God's the Savior, just kick back and watch God save people, right? I hope hope you don't say right, because it's not right. Yes, God is the Savior, but God saves people through gospel-centered truth communicated through his people. That is his plan. So there are people that God has appointed for you to speak into their lives in order that they would be saved. It's hard work building a relational bridge where they trust you to listen to you and, and are willing to hear the, the gospel takes time and can be challenging. Paul doesn't consider the task of bringing people to faith in Christ finished upon the the first profession of faith. That's because true saving faith perseveres in growth and godliness. So once once faith has been uh, confessed, you're on a track to grow in godliness. That's that's what you have faith for. It's not just to check in, say, okay, I'm saved, now, now what do I do? 
So we need to continually rely on gospel-centered truth and means of grace to persevere in faith, which is evidenced in growth and godliness. It doesn't happen automatically as if on spiritual cruise control. I just press the button and on I go. It requires regular intake of the word, prayer, relationships in the body, service to, to Jesus, um, baptism and communion, a part of that, and worship. So we need to continue, continually rely upon gospel-centered truth to grow in godliness. That's why Paul said we toil and strive. In fact, he says it similarly in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28-29. He said, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says he toils in warning everyone, like warning, hey, don't fall away from the faith. Don't turn to another gospel. Don't listen to doctrines of demons. And teaching everyone to present everyone mature in Christ. That means they have been growing in godliness. So Paul's just, Paul works his tail off in order to present everyone mature in Christ. He says he doesn't do this casually as if it's no big deal, but he toils, struggling, agonizing, not in his own strength, but merely, but with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within him. So yes, the living God is the Savior of all who believe in Jesus. God does the saving, for sure. But he does it through our toiling and striving in the work of making disciples through the gospel. And salvation is a free gift of God. We can't do anything to prime the pump to make us more, more worthy of receiving his grace than, than anyone else. So it's a free gift of God that we receive through faith in, in Christ. But we need constant training and good gospel-centered doctrine to persevere in faith because living is hazardous to your faith. So I'm going to pray for us that God will help us. Join me. Father, we ask for your help. We need you to make these words that we study today effective in our lives, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to, to long for purity in Christ, to pursue the means of grace you've given to us, your word, your prayer, um, service and fellowship with other believers, worship. Father, help us to continue to grow in godliness. Keep us alert to, to deception and to non-gospel-oriented truth. The world is not friendly to the gospel, Father. Our hearts by themselves are not friendly to the gospel. We need it constantly renewed in us through your Spirit. So do that work in us today, Father, for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.